The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, and sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always beyond reality. Welcome to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being with us tonight. We've got a great discussion for you with Dr. Andrew Silverman uh, from the U.K., actually. Dr. Silverman is a recognized leader and a scientific expert on the Shroud of Turin. He's also a medical doctor, and he has a background in physics. And for over 30 years, he's been conducting research on the mind-matter continuum, near-death experiences, and the Shroud. And he's presented his findings in peer-reviewed scientific papers and at international scientific conferences. So that's what we'll be talking tonight about tonight. Um, in addition to some other things, um, as a medical doctor, obviously, I want to get his opinion on what's happening in the UK or even globally as it relates to the pandemic that we're all dealing with right now. So it's going to be a fascinating discussion. Before we bring him in, though, I do want to remind you to go to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's free. There's no obligation, nothing, but it gives you uh, an ability to connect with our online community and access to hundreds. In fact, probably about 600 back episodes of Beyond Reality. It's a great way to catch up on uh, topics that you're interested in because they're all there. So go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson. The name of the channel is J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. It's easy to find. Subscribe to it. Click the notification icon if you want to be alerted when we go live, when we stream the program live, or we upload bonus content. We do both of those quite often. Uh, also, find the podcast version of the show. That's also a great way to stay in touch with what we're talking about. The podcast can be downloaded to your smart device, your phone, your tablet, whatever it happens to be, automatically and ready for you to listen to whenever it's convenient. And uh, those are available at every major podcast distribution platform, including Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and others. So, again, thanks for doing all of that, and thank you for supporting the show. We great, greatly appreciate it. We really do. So, again, tonight we'll be talking about the Shroud of Turin, near-death experiences, the mind-matter continuum, all with Dr. Andrew Silverman from the U.K. That's coming up right here on Beyond Reality. Don't go away. Looking for our guest's book? Go to Amazon.com slash shop slash JVJTaps. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to the program. It's Beyond Reality. Again, I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks so much for being here with us tonight. We have a fascinating discussion planned for you. From the U.K., we've got uh, guest Dr. Andrew Silverman. We're going to be talking about themes and content of his book, A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and the Limitless Potential of Humanity. Dr. Silverman, welcome to Beyond Reality. Thanks so much for being here with us tonight. Thank you. For, thank you also. It's great to be here. So the first thing I have to ask you, just because of what we're seeing, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing around the world today, you're a medical doctor. And uh, are you a clinician or a researcher? Yes. Okay. Um, I, I'm a clinician. Yeah, I'm sorry. What What are you seeing 
in regards to what we would consider to be rather unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, uh, a medical situation around the world with this pandemic we're dealing with. Well, yes, it's it has got uh, quite. It's it's getting worse, of course, with time, and the uh, the incidence is is going up as well uh, as time goes by, and so um, we've had to to sort of scale back a lot of our, our medical services to uh, avoid unnecessary contact, really, um, yeah. to protect the the clinicians, but also to to protect the patients from meeting other people in public places such as a, a, a clinic where they might catch it from someone else. Uh, this is a very pointed question, uh, and answer it or don't answer it the way you feel appropriate, but does this particular virus, this particular pandemic scare you? Well, I think it's a, it's a, a good reminder of, of how much we, we take for granted that uh, there's a there's an old saying amongst, uh, for example, uh, the Tibetan Buddhists that we're, we're always just one heartbeat away from death. That that we we tend to to live all the time, uh, sort of denying our our own mortality, and and something like a pandemic does sort of remind us of it a little bit. How is the UK faring throughout all of this? I know it's getting a little bit uh, crazier than we expected here in the United States. Um, was the UK prepared for this? Uh, I, I'm not sure that anywhere was was really prepared for it. To be honest, um, I mean, it hasn't got got as quite as as uh, as prevalent here yet. But I'm I'm sure it will do because it's 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 going up exponentially. It's sort of doubling every few days. Last question about this, and we'll move on. Do you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's, firstly, it's not going to infect everyone. And secondly, most people who get it will have a, a mild illness and then they'll be immune to it. But that doesn't help uh, for people who are grieving the tragedy of the loss of a of a loved one, of course. Yeah. Does uh, that immunity, does it last uh, a while do we know it's not like the chicken pox you get it once and you won't get it again i'm not sure anyone knows because this is a this is a new virus yeah. but it's uh, what i've heard the virologists who are uh, speculating about it suspect that that it's quite possible it, it gives lifelong immunity but if not then it could be at least a, a year and yeah. uh, hopefully there'll be a vaccine by then well that's interesting thank you for answering those questions this must be that's an incredibly okay. busy time for you all medical professionals around the world are uh, experiencing uh, demand and uh, stresses probably that they've never never experienced before so thank you for doing this let's talk about your other work though the work that we uh, we scheduled to have you on the program about you've been researching and i'll quote uh you mind matter continuum near-death experiences in the shroud of turin are these related topics or are they three distinct fields of study well actually the book shows i would say how how they are in fact in fact related uh, for example if we're trying to understand the nature of, of consciousness and the question has to to come up and is at the front of people's minds if you like is consciousness just an artifact of the brain and of course for example near-death experiences would suggest otherwise that when the brain waves are flat people are conscious and experiencing laying down new memories and experiencing things that they they couldn't have known about 
physically, such as describing specific details of their own resuscitation that were happening while their brain was not functioning at all. And it, and it has suggested to, to many researchers that, that consciousness cannot be a product of anything material. It has to be has to be something fundamental. And in fact, many scientists in the field of of quantum theory, at the at the outset of quantum theory, people like Planck and and Schrödinger and so on, were were very strongly of the opinion that consciousness is fundamental and not made by matter. And more recently, there are people such as the uh, uh, very highly esteemed uh, professor of physics at the University of Stanford, Andre Linder, who has gone on the record publicly to suggest that reason and science do point to the fundamental nature of consciousness, that perhaps it does not rely on matter at all, but the other way around, that matter relies on consciousness. And and that's that's a fascinating concept. And let me ask you, is another way to describe that um, by saying that uh, our consciousness consciousness is not a biological function yes it's it's not a, a, a function of, it's not a biological function or a, a material function interesting you um have been researching this and and um and discussing it for quite some time 30 years um but you recently decided to write a write a book what mm. uh, how would you summarize the book and um what made you decide to publish it at this point? Well, actually, it was after I had uh, given a, a, a public talk on the uh, the image on the Shroud of Turin and and uh, and how I suggested it it might have got there, and 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 then uh, that led me to think about writing. And, and initially, it was a book about that, about the Turin Shroud. But I realised that to to do that subject justice to address it properly one would need to try to understand how such a thing could work because right from the outset i didn't want to follow the line of of either mystery or or dogma so i wanted to to see what reason and and scientific evidence would suggest together with with rational thought and uh it seemed to me that that I mean, after I should say for for those listeners who who might think that the carbon dating thirty years ago suggested that the shroud was actually medieval, that they may not be aware that uh, a leading scientist at Los Alamos uh, Research Laboratories by the name of Raymond Rogers just, um, uh, found scientific evidence to confirm a theory of uh, two two researchers from the from the U.S. called Sue Benford and Joe Marino that actually the area of the shroud that was carbon dated was not representative of the rest of the cloth. It was actually had been repaired and consisted mostly, in fact, not of the original material, but of much more recent material that had been had been sewn in in the in the 60, probably in the 16th century. Um, so the the image that's on there, which uh, scientists who have looked at it, for example, at the Atomic Energy Institute of in uh, Frascati in Italy, a, a team led by uh, Dr. Paolo Di Lazzaro, a physicist there, uh, which suggests that the image seems to have formed by a, a short burst of intense radiant energy that came from the, the dead body of the man that the cloth once wrapped. And so the question is, how how could such a thing happen? And And if it's all the evidence sort of forensically and uh, so on points towards the the individual who 
who was wrapped by the, the shroud being actually the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I, I as I say, approach this from a, a rational standpoint rather than a religious one. And I was wondering, you know, is there something about what this man taught and how he lived that might be a clue to how a human being could be capable of, of doing that after after they died and a dead body producing this burst of light? And that's what sort of led me to, to speculate regarding and then look investigate further and make certain discoveries about how mind and matter could be connected. Clearly, the shroud has been a source of controversy for quite some time. Uh, it's been examined to a, to a point. Uh, access to it is understandably limited. But um, And you, you kind of touched on this just a moment ago, but outline for us where the current schools of scientific thought are about the shroud, because I'm sure there's not a complete consensus. That's, that, you're absolutely right. Um, so, I mean, there are uh, many people who just got convinced by the carbon dating and then, you know, forgot all about it. Except, of course, interestingly, um, the uh, gentleman who now actually heads the Oxford Radiocarbon Lab, which is was one of the three that did the original study, has actually himself gone on the record in uh, a, a program that was made for for the the. BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, by by David Rolfe, and uh, the uh, the leader of the radiocarbon unit at Oxford went on the record to say that actually there's so much evidence that points to a much earlier date for the cloth than than the date that the radiocarbon uh, evidence came out for that that he felt much more research was needed to to form uh, a, a consistent understanding of of, of the, the origins of of this cloth because there there is so much evidence that that points to it being so much older than that and the thing is that if you we're talking about whether there's consensus about how the image got there the first thing to say is that nobody knows how to make such a image now even using 21st century technology and uh, those people who have tried to make replicas of it, uh, to, to their credit, have even accepted the fact that actually they're not replicas, <laughs> that right. they, don't, they don't actually, if you look at it at a microscopic level, people like uh, Gala Shelley with his attempt at it, it, it really has many different properties to the actual image on the cloth, which is, which is really unique. It's, uh, it's only on the uh, very outermost fibrils, 200 nanometers in thickness, which is around one five thousandth of a, of a millimeter. And it doesn't consist of anything that has been added to the cloth. It's, uh, it's explained uh, chemically as an oxidation and dehydration of the, of the cellulose in the cloth. It's basically similar to, to what happens to uh, paper when it's exposed to sunlight and how it turns this sort of yellowish color. Well, this appears to have happened to form the image of a man. And the, the implication is with the various things, including the photographic negative properties and the distance coding that the just like sunlight can do that to paper over a long period of time this appears to have happened instantaneously when i say instantaneously within within again within billionths of a second that there had been a, a, a burst of, of ultraviolet light it appears from this this dead body and this is the this is what the, it sounds like a bizarre thing to suggest, but this is what the scientific empirical evidence is pointing towards. And the book is exploring if such a thing did happen, 
how did it happen? How does such a phenomenon work scientifically? And to understand how it could be happened scientifically, maybe we need to, as many of the founders of quantum theory realized, we need to expand our notion of what science is to include an attempt to understand consciousness as being as being fundamental to the, even the existence of material reality. Maybe it's from the chair that I sit in, but it seems as though there are more and more scientists that are willing to accept what you just outlined and what you just said, and not specifically about the shroud, but about quantum science and this idea that consciousness um, is is maybe part of a matrix or part of a dimensional um, connection. Uh, do you see that as well within the scientific community, that there is a broader acceptance of this? Um Personally, I don't see it as a dimensional thing or part of a matrix or or anything that that can be um, sort of um, uh, sort of made an analog to in terms of in terms of things or, or because I think I, I always see a distinction between the what the contents of consciousness, what we are aware of, and the actual state of being aware of it. So, for example. Uh, you know this notion of of information which is can be can be sort of summarized in terms of ones and zeros that um, define computer programs and so on now I would argue that however complex and long you make a string of ones and zeros it's never going to wake up and be a conscious sentient entity you can't make one who can perceive information out of information and and that's the that's the that's a vital distinction to me but yes I, I, there are there are um now um a, there are still a minority i think but there there is a, a quite a, a significant minority of scientists who who take this view and of course one could argue that although it's a, a minority of scientists who take this view explicitly in their everyday lives of course they 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 actually know it to be true that consciousness is far more than a than a pile of a pile of atoms. That's why they they care for their children and have a conscience and and you know understand the notion of people being responsible for their actions because of free will. Now, if we were just a pile of a pile of cells and a, a, a gelatinous substance in our brain uh, that makes our brain was determining all the actions that we did, then there'd be no reason to to have any sense of of, of morality or or notions of credit or blame for what we did because it was all fixed and determined. So this is the interesting thing, that the, the dilemma that if you ask them, if you interview many scientists, they'll say, oh, no, it's just, a, it's just from the brain. But actually, subconsciously, if you like, they really do believe it's, it's more than that. Interestingly, um, you know, if you talk to um, the, uh, the scientific researcher Rupert Sheldrake, who's done a lot of uh, groundbreaking work on uh, investigating telepathy and things like that, um, he makes the point that when he gives a talk to uh, rooms full of, of, of sort of uh, conventional mainstream scientists, that they're, they're, every, it all goes quiet. They don't say anything in the in the question time. But but many of them will come up to him afterwards when no one else is is listening and say, actually, they agree with what he's saying, but it's just in public. They won't go on the record to, <laughs> to say it. <laughs> Um, so if if what we're saying here is true, or at least partially true, or we're working toward finding that truth, where does that put the human race, human beings, humanity in this bigger scope of the universe and creation and um, and time for that matter? Yes. Well, the the I think that's the, the clue to it is is time, because you see in the the laws of physics, 
don't have uh, a, a now, they don't have a present, uh, a, a moment that, that we, that, like we experience and are experiencing now and are always experiencing as, as now. The, the laws of physics would have, uh, for example, the, the Big Bang origin of the universe and the heat death could all be on one diagram altogether. They're all, there's no, nothing to demarcate a cursor, if you like, that points to a present moment. It's only for, for conscious being that such a thing as now exists. And, and Erwin Schrodinger, for example, made that point that, that the mind is always now. And therefore, it is, it's only because of the mind that there is such a thing as time. And therefore, time is a product of consciousness, which th from that it follows that if, if time is a product of consciousness, then consciousness cannot be made by or destroyed in time and must therefore be eternal. And he actually uh, went on the, the record as, as, as saying that, that, that basically we, we have no beginning or end as, as sentient, a sentient being in his book, which was called uh, What is Life um, with Mind and Matter. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Silverman tonight. His book is called A Burst of Conscious Light, Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin and Limitless Potential of Humanity. We mentioned near-death experiences, um, and you talked about uh, descriptions of these experiences from those who have experienced them, uh, being able to describe things that they would have no understanding of otherwise, being able to describe a procedure maybe that was happening to them because they were in an accident or a medical emergency, and uh, they can describe this even though they were completely either unconscious or in some cases um, clinically dead. Um, yet other people, other scientists may say, yeah, that's, the, that's a trick of the brain. What are your thoughts on that? Well, if it were a trick of the brain, then how is it that they, they can accurately report what they, what they perceived? These are called uh, veridical uh, near-death experiences. Where, and it, even uh, there have been blind patients who have never actually seen before, at least in that, that lifetime, if you like, They'd never seen. Um, and yet uh, they describe seeing during, during their, their near-death experience. But uh, the, the point is, of course, that there's two, two points here. One is the accuracy of what they're perceiving. And secondly, the fact that they're perceiving at all, the fact that they, that they have a memory of the events that they're describing that happened during, that, that they, they say that they experienced during that time, while their brain was not functioning at all. The brain waves are flat. It, it, they become flat within just a few seconds after the uh, cardiac arrest. And yet, despite the, the lack of any activity in the brain, they were still having that experience, even, even if it wasn't an accurate description, which it is, of what was happening. How could they have that experience if consciousness is made by the brain and the brain isn't working? So as um, people share those experiences and as you've researched these experiences, have you found that there's any commonality between what the descriptions are, not just of what they witness, but maybe what happens after they've witnessed? We had a gentleman on not long ago who talked about being ushered out of the room by some type of being. This is during his his clinically dead moment um, and having a conversation, a bit of a life review. Do those things uh, ever enter into your con your conversations or your research? Yes, um, two of the of the very common themes, uh, that, and there's been a lot of sort of scientific empirical uh, research on it. Some of it published in you know very uh, prestigious scientific journals such as uh, 
Dr. Pim van Lommel's paper in the UK medical journal called The Lancet, and there are many others, a journal called Resuscitation has also had a lot of these uh, papers. And, and two of the common themes are uh, a very bright light and people having a sense that somehow this light is associated with with wisdom that all mm -hmm. the answers are in that light and also the light is associated with a sense of compassion that they felt loved by this light that they experience and then the other common factor is as you say the life review which is probably even before the subject of near-death experiences uh, was sort of known about, people used to talk about seeing one's whole life flashing before That's you, right. which is which is probably because that that word got into the collective psychology, if you like, because so many people had actually experienced it. And the interesting thing is that during the life review, so many people say that what they experience is everything that they have done, but from the point of view of the other person so anything that they did that was that was not unkind or harmful to another person they feel what that caused to that person and anything that they did that was that was kind and compassionate they feel as though that kindness is being is being done to them so they they feel a sense of seeing it, uh, where they feel it was right and wrong but not in the sense of of being judged but of of their own conscience being the being the arbiter in a sense of, of natural empathy. So quantum science seems to be the key to starting to explain these ideas. So what is it about quantum science or quantum physics specifically that uh, starts to support this idea that consciousness is, is fundamental? Yes, well, it was it was realized uh, way early on in the in the, the when quantum theory first first appeared by uh, people, for example, like uh, Eugene Wigner, that that once you started to look at the the way that quantum physics was being expressed, it was impossible to to understand it without introducing the notion of of consciousness of the observer, and, and uh, I'll explain why. Um, because you see, in Quantum events, or uh, for, for example, for an electron or a photon, and so on, uh, they they don't have specific properties until they're measured. This is where the until they're they're actually uh, arguably until they're consciously perceived. This is where the the notion of Schrödinger's cat came from. Uh, actually, that was. Uh, the Schrödinger's cat was a was an article published by 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 Schrödinger in a sense sort of poking fun at his own equation because he was saying that it, this can't be complete. How can the cat both be both be dead and alive at the same time? Now, actually, what it is actually saying it's it's slightly uh, a little bit uh, more to it than that because, for example, the uh, take the example of the cat. It's not actually alive and dead at the same time. The, the quantum formalism would say it's alive plus dead or alive minus dead or alive plus the square root of minus one times dead and all, <laughs> all of these kind of things. Um, it basically, which really equates to saying that it has no state of being alive or dead until it is perceived. The electron has no actual location until it's until it's measured and, and so on. And it was realized by uh, London and Bauer and um, and uh, von Neumann um, that there was something called the, uh, the well that it was actually called the von Neumann chain of 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 
observation that you could have a, um, uh, a quantum event such as a decay of a radioactive particle and then you have a detector and then you have a screen where the result of that detector is and then you have a person that looks at that screen. And what they realized is that in consciousness, we only ever experience it, things being one thing or the other. They're never, um, you know, you don't look in a box and see a cat that's somehow alive and dead or alive minus dead, that it's actually consciousness that, that is singular in, in that sense. And therefore, that the end of the von Neumann chain of observation has to be the conscious observer. And uh, Andre Linder, for example, uh, the professor of physics at, at Stanford, makes the point that, that if, you, if you take the, the whole universe as a whole, then according to if you have what's called the wave function of the universe, so quantum theory applied to the whole universe, then nothing could ever actually happen unless there's an observer. Uh, because any, I give a, on the... Um, the website on my website there's a link to the um interview where he where he explains how that's the case and how to have time you need to have consciousness and of course that website is andrewsilverman.co.uk right that's right yeah so as we talk more about quantum theories and quantum ideas some interpretations will will say that all things are happening at all times all possibilities coexist is that part of what you believe, and does that do something to change our concept of free will? Well, you see, I believe it's it doesn't really make sense to say that the all the all possibilities all possibilities happen because you see to me the the existence of of consciousness involves the also the uh, the awareness of of options. And therefore, the capacity to choose to choose freely, uh, and so uh, it, the only reason, the only way that I can make sense of there being a present moment, a moment that we call now, is because the future is not fixed, and it, it's only through the the notion of free will that we can understand fully why there should be what we call an arrow of time, why the past and the and the future are are distinct. And uh, this is something that, that a lot of physicists have grappled with, because otherwise you, you should be able to, 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 to go backwards in time. But that would contradict causality, because the causation never goes back from the, from the future into, into the past. And in fact, Stephen Hawking invented something he called the chronology protection conjecture, meaning that, that the order of time has to be protected. But he, he said there must be such a thing for causality to work, but we don't know, you know, what it is or, or where it comes from. And, and in the book, I make a case that what it is, is basically, is basically the existence of consciousness means the existence of free will. And what we call the future is just what hasn't been, been fixed yet. And it hasn't been, been fixed because choice is real. Well, then let me ask this. Um, based on what you just said, does that uh, imply that time travel is not something that's possible? Well, you see, the thing is that actually, um, when we say time travel, we have to be clear about what we mean by that, because arguably uh, people will say, oh, we're, we're all moving through time already, although 
what you can ask, what does that mean moving through time? Is that one second per second? But actually, according to uh, relativity, and this has been Einstein's relativity, and this has been verified by many, many uh, experiment, empirical experiments, that depending on uh, even, and, and this is something that even satellite navigation systems rely on, that the rate of clocks varies depending on the strength of a, of a gravitational field and also varies depending on the state of relative motion of, of one clock relative to another object and, and so on. So in that sense, um, you can, by, by going close to the speed of light or, or by being in a, in a high gravitational field, you can then reach uh, sort of, you could sort of arrive at 2030 and less time would have gone by to your subjective clock to, to the other people who are sitting on earth, um, you know, watching the, watching the hours, days, years go, go past. So if you could call that, you could call that time travel if, if you like. But, but I argue that there's no such thing as actually physically traveling to into the past. Now there is such a thing as um, in, in quantum theory actually called the, the delayed choice effect, whereby you can you can set up an experiment that can influence what the electron or the photon or whatever did before you measured it. And people say, oh, but that is is, is sort of causation backwards in time. But the point though that one has to realize is that the electron or photon are not actually real and don't have actual fixed properties until they're until they're observed. So your your the past of it becomes real by the observation. It's not that you're actually changing its past from one thing to another thing. I just want a, a clarification on something you said when you gave the example that you could arrive at twenty thirty prior to um, maybe others who who would experience twenty thirty on Earth. Um, is that? in your mind, uh, uh, um, an example of time travel or a time distortion? Well, it's, it's more of a distortion, really. You, you, would, you would, in a sense, you'd arrive at 2030 on Earth at the same time as they arrive at 2030 on Earth. But to your biological clock and to the watch on your wrist, uh, less time might have elapsed for you by the time you, you, you get there. Yes, it, it would be reasonable to call that distortion, yeah. So if we're talking about consciousness being a non-biological function, uh, does that start to add uh, credence to the concepts like extrasensory perception or maybe telepathy or telekinesis yes. or any of these ideas? Yes, indeed. In fact, um, I uh, make the, the case in the book and, and explain why I say this, that actually when we say extrasensory perception, we mean perceiving something beyond the senses. Now, the senses are, for example, take vision, you've got your eyes and uh, they, the retina detects light and sends a signal, uh, goes to the, the part of the back of the brain uh, called the occipital cortex and so on. But that's all just electrical activities in, in gel a gelatinous substance called the, the brain. But then somehow you are consciously aware of that and that conscious awareness isn't part of the sense. It's not part of the eye. It's not part of the brain, as we can see from near-death experiences, where the brain stops and people still perceive. So what that means is actually your perception is all extrasensory. Then take mind over matter. Well, 
if if you have actual uh, as you do awareness sentience you can be aware of options and make free choices between those options that are available to you okay so let's say you make an option uh, you make you 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 make a choice so i decide to raise my arm for example and then my arm goes up because i decided to put my arm up surely if, if that decision arose in my mind which isn't i've just demonstrated how that wasn't the mind was not made by the brain and yet it's able to influence the brain such so as to be able to influence my arm that's mind over matter so every single action we make is mind over matter every single moment of perception is extrasensory so i argue in the book that these are totally natural phenomena in fact we don't even need to have such a word as a supernatural or even paranormal this is actually normal <laughs> that this is the natural state of of being is that is that mind is dominant over over matter now it may its extent of dominance may may vary and then i also go into that in the book to 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 look at the question of the of what is the full nature of of human potential such that uh, phenomena such as the the one that formed the image on the Turin shroud for example how we can we can understand that 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 that's an example of of, a, of something that a, a human being achieved which which then leads on to not a necessarily just the uniqueness of that individual but but showing how that potential lies in all human beings which is actually if if it was as the evidence suggests the historical jesus of nazareth that it was his burial cloth that was actually what he was pointing to because he went on the record i think in the in the bible it's recorded uh, someone told me it was john chapter 14 that um everything you see me do you also can do and greater than these things can you do so he wasn't trying to set himself up as on a pedestal and and saying you know uh, i'm much better than you you can never be like me he was saying why don't you also do do these things and but with the emphasis always on loving the neighbor as self which is basically again in the book i point to that being a very rational thing to say because actually fundam at the fundamental level all consciousness is is one so your neighbor is yourself and if you do that fully and undo the restrictions thereby that that limit us in separation and i argue that it's that separation which is the where physical universes come from because space after all is just the is just the separation of points then it makes you don't have to have words like supernatural or miracle that he was able to do the 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 things that he did simply because of the power of how of how much he cared that if you look, look at all the the things for example the food for the 5000 or whatever it was all a compassionate response to to through empathy to to other people's what they what that to their suffering or what they or their their need and and it was the the sort of spectacular side of it was just totally incidental and it was i don't think it was it was about that he was just showing what human beings what the full potential can be so i that gives gives me a couple of questions i'm not sure which order sure. to ask them in but if if these ideas are part of the human potential why are they so difficult for us to demonstrate Right. Well, again, I would argue that we're demonstrating them all the time. That the fact that we're conscious shows 
shows us the extrasensory perception. The fact that uh, we have free will shows mind over matter. And in fact, I mentioned Rupert Sheldrake earlier, but he, he uh, wrote a book, Seven Experiments That Could Change the World, about how, for example, people actually, and you can, anyone can do these experiments themselves, that, that how do people have a sense that they're being looked at right. you know, when someone's behind you looking at you? That's right. If there's not such a th- yeah, you see, there's so much evidence all around us, which we which we even uh, sort of people who who claim to be fully materialist and believe that their their um, their mind is just a product of a physical organ called the brain, and nobody else's mind can influence it. And yet, those same people will. Uh, not realizingly contradict themselves and say, yeah, I just knew someone was looking at me. How did you know? You see, so it's actually, it's not that difficult at all. And, 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 and actually the, these experiences are, are very common, but we just don't notice them. We don't pay attention to them and we don't realize that the significance of them as a, you know, as a, as a quest, an object of study. And based on what you just described uh, as the actions of Jesus of Nazareth, um, you know, mm. we would we would we would up until this point, I guess, call those things miracles. But you're saying they're just the realities of consciousness. That they're, they're what consciousness can can achieve. I would say that actually, this whole physical universe of space, time, and matter is just a. a like a tiny dot compared to the the full the full nature of of existence, and that 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 state of of oneness of all being that that people perceive as the light that they see in near death experiences it is the natural sort of normal if you like state of existence. But we are like the the um, the tight the the most of the, perhaps what when the physical universe began most of consciousness didn't get caught here perhaps and we're just the, the the last dregs that are that are left here thinking that we are all that there is but but i i think that reason and logic suggest that there's much more than that we're talking tonight with dr andrew silverman his website is his name andrew uk, and the book we're talking about his book a burst of conscious light Near-Death Experiences, The Shroud of Turin, and The Limitless Potential of Humanity. Be sure to visit us on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go there and search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it very, very easily. Also, subscribe to the podcast version of the program. It's a great way to catch up if you've missed one of the live broadcasts. It's available on all podcast distribution networks, at least the major ones, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, also Spotify and others. And when you subscribe... The uh, programs download automatically to your smart device, whether it's your phone or your tablet or whatever it happens to be. Makes it very, very convenient. Again, tonight we're talking with Dr. Andrew Silverman. We're talking about his book, A Burst of Conscious Light. I want to bring up the idea, Dr. Silverman, of uh, artificial intelligence. Is that an oxymoron? Is that possible? That, yeah, well, precisely. I would, I would argue, yes, it, it, it is an oxymoron. And um, in fact, um, there was a, um, a nicely titled uh, book by uh, the, 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 I would call him a genius, uh, Professor Roger Penrose, um, co- written in 1989, called "The Emperor's New Mind," um, which, which uh, you know, is a sort of play on words with the Emperor's New Clothes that everyone's saying the, about artificial intelligence and whether actually such a thing is that even is even possible, and how everyone's so quick to to say, "Oh, yes, it is." But you have to be careful when you say intelligence, whether you mean intelligence as we 
see it as human beings or do you just mean processing information because yes machines and computers can process information well so can a so can an abacus can can process information so can an electronic calculator but it's not aware of that of that information and that's the point that that to be intelligent truly intelligent one has to understand and to understand one has to be conscious and so uh, the the fact that machines can very effectively process large amounts of information very efficiently and so on doesn't actually imply that there's it's conscious as people, as one would say there, there isn't something that it is like to be that machine because there is no entity called that machine it's just an object so there's a sentience issue here yes precisely is artificial intelligence again we'll use their terminology not maybe what we would sure. use here but is artificial intelligence dangerous stephen hawking seemed to think it is i i would totally agree with him in fact uh, about the about the danger of it so um in fact he was part of the uh cser the center for the study of existential risk in in cambridge uh, england and there's uh, another one in oxford england called the future of humanity institute where where very learned people who which included in his lifetime uh, stephen hawking sort of gathered together and discuss the potential danger its existential risks to the survival of humanity humanity and uh they a lot of them felt that one of the biggest risks would be the unanticipated consequences of of technology for example you know you have things like um autonomous weapons and so on and uh very and that there's lots of scientists are campaigning against such a thing as as autonomous weapons uh but also even if you have machines or robots or androids or whatever you call them that are that are supposedly programmed to make there be a good quality of life for human beings one has to be so careful because as many people have pointed out if you program machines to to make sure that there's no human suffering then to a machine the best way to make sure there's no human suffering is to wipe out all human beings because if there's no one there then there's no one, no one can suffer to, because that there's no sense of anything there's no sense because they're not aware so that they can't have empathy they can't have conscience they're just simply following a, a program and people get fooled by appearances this is the problem so if you start making machines that have have human looking skin and human looking eyes and and so on and then that that machine speaks to you then people will thought oh maybe it is conscious but it's no it's it's no less a machine than a, a lever or a a a vacuum cleaner is a machine it's just it's just made to look human and we have to see past what things look like i think this is the thing one of the interesting examples of the dilemma here when it comes to quote unquote artificial intelligence is the idea and, and maybe this is a very simplistic view of it but i i do find it a, a good point is the idea that uh, these self-driving cars which seem to be introduced rather quickly um one of the things they can't figure out how to handle is this moral uh, issue. Mm. If a car, if a self-driving car was about to get into an accident and you've got a, a a child in the passenger seat versus an adult in the driver's seat, how does that car react to protect either the driver or the or the child passenger? And these are moral mm. decisions that yeah. machines can't yeah. make. Indeed, or the pedestrian or the people exactly. in the in the other vehicle. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um as we look at artificial intelligence progressing um 
and we talk about these dangers. Is there a real danger that we may develop a machine that we can't control? Well, yes. I mean, um, the, there's already the the possibility that, for all we know, it's it's already been been made. I mean, there were um, even during the during the Cold War, there were so many near misses that that, um, that because of of um, you know machines sort of misreading information and so on that uh things that were not actually uh weapons were mistaken for weapons and and I, it was fortunately there were sensible people on on both sides who um who who actually managed on each occasion to to stop it escalating but but yes um definitely that 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 is possible that that we could do that let's turn the conversation back to the shroud of Turin. Uh, this yeah. is this is obviously something again that has been in um, not just discussion within religious circles, but also uh, scientific communities, and it's been yeah. the subject of a lot of controversy. A lot of people still maintain that it's a medieval forgery. You say no, and you um, you actually support that position rather eloquently. But again, remind us why you've taken that position. Sure. Well, the the thing is that if it were a forgery, there's several questions that one has to answer. Um, how did the forger do it? Why did they put information on there that was only became apparent using 20th and, and 21st century technology? And how did they have modern day level knowledge of, of uh, anatomy, physiology and pathology? Uh, because for it, just take a very simple example. No medieval uh, paintings you look at, they'll show the victims of crucifixion having a nail through the hand. Now, it was only relatively recently that it was realized by anatomists that that's not possible because the hand wouldn't take the weight of the body. It would have to be the wrist. But that's what you see on the shroud. It was the wrist. And and they, you know, the, the, they didn't even have a, a sense of perspective in, in uh, medieval art. In fact, um, there's a, uh, an art historian, uh, Thomas de Wesselow, who's um, written a book about how the, the, the Turin Shroud uh, image could not have been the, the product of, of an artist uh, and doesn't fit with any sort of school of art at all. Um, and, but, and again, as I say, you come to the question of, well, how did they do it? Because even using 20th or 21st century technology, we can't manufacture an image with the properties that it has, the, the, the superficiality of it, as I say, that it's only one five thousandth of a millimeter in thickness, the, the image, the, the, that's together with the, the photographic negative properties and the, and the distance coding. And just from the, the blood stains alone, blood and, and serum stains, that have that so many forensic pathologists that have looked at it that says so it's almost like a sort of crime scene you can you can tell from looking at the at the forensic physical evidence on the shroud that it did once wrap the recently deceased body of a man who had been whipped tortured with a, a cap of sharp objects placed on his head and he'd been crucified and he had died before he was wrapped in the shroud but then there's something interesting here that, that there were two different processes that go to make what we see on the shroud. One is very simple and simple to understand that a dead body was wrapped in it. And so the blood that hadn't yet dried um, 
that the stains were transferred onto the, the cloth and so on in an anatomical pattern according to where the cloth was draped on him. But then there's another and that's the that's the image that's on there. And there's some the image shows that the that the and this was pointed out to me by uh, a, a physician uh, from from Boston, actually, uh, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie. That, that when you look, try and superimpose the, the bloodstains in the image, they don't actually quite match up because when the bloodstains formed, the, the, the cloth was wrapped around the, the body, but then the bloodstains from the face are superimposed on the image of the hair as though the, the cloth was, was somehow flattened out by the time that the image formed. And this supine corpse that the cloth had been wrapped around at the time that the image formed appears to be vertical because the the hair is is not hanging down at the back but it's hanging down on the on the shoulders and there's no one would expect even if rigor mortis was was still present and rigor mortis only lasts for about 24 to, to hours or so you would expect from gravity, the, uh, uh, a body that because uh, the uh, subcutaneous uh, tissues and, and fat and so on are compressible, it, rigor mortis only affects the muscle. You should get flattening around the calves and the buttocks and so on if, if the body had been laying flat when the image formed, but that's not there. So it does, he was actually, the body was, was upright, uh, as we can see from the lack of flattening at the back and the hair hanging down. Upright but not standing because the feet aren't at the same level. Level. So it appears, looking just from the scientific empirical evidence, that this dead body at the moment that the image formed was actually vertical and levitating above the ground, which is something that we can own, a conclusion we can come to using 20th and 21st century techniques from science applied to the information that's on the cloth. And it's just interesting that the fact of the, this floating above the ground and the burst of light both actually sort of match up with uh, with historical descriptions uh, from the reports of the during the lifetime of of Jesus of Nazareth, if indeed it is his image, as the evidence suggests it is, that he was seen at times to rise above the ground or to walk on the water. And at one point, uh, when some of his friends were gathered around him, they said that it, uh, he shone br brighter than the sun. So this is interesting that that um, that we're seeing similar things just using only sort of empirical scientific research. Now, I, I should say at this point, I don't come at this from a from at all from a from a Christian background. Of course, neither did he, um, Jesus. Um, he, he was uh, he, uh, was so the religions formed afterwards um you know in in terms of people trying to understand what he said and represent it in 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 different ways um but this is just from just from looking at the at the rational scientific evidence it points me towards these conclusions that i've written about in the book how much access does the church allow to the shroud obviously it can't be continuously manipulated or samples mm. taken from it that would destroy it um, but but how much access has been allowed well uh, you see, uh, in, they allowed it to be photographed in 1898, which is how Secunda Pia discovered the photographic negative properties of it. Because if you actually look at the at the image on the cloth, it's it looks vague and indistinct until you take a photo and you look, you see the negative. Um, 
for for those uh, younger <laughs> listeners who are familiar with digital <laughs> photos in the old days when I was young you took a picture and and you got a negative which which reversed the light and shade of the of the image and then you had to go and get that developed and and so the the negative of the of the image of the shroud is like a positive it's like a a, a black and white photograph of a of a human being and then um it was only allowed out very occasionally um at that time it didn't actually belong to the church at that time it belonged to uh the the royal family in italy the the savoy family and indeed in 1978 the duke of savoy uh, allowed the team of researchers who are known as STIRP, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, including uh, eminent researchers such as uh, Dr. John Jackson and uh, Barry Schwartz, who, the one who has the, the website shroud.com. He was a member of that team as well. Um, and uh, they, um, he allowed these scientists who were coming from, you know, work in NASA, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, Los Alamos and things like that. They were allowed uh, uh, sort of several days of round-the-clock access to the shroud to do all kinds of state-of-the-art uh, measurements and observations uh, upon it. And and if you, are, if you ask them, a lot of the people who are still around, they'll... they'll um, tell you that when they were you know decided to go there at first they thought that they'd go there and find the brush strokes in five minutes and then go back home again <laughs> but these scientists and researchers were all astonished that they couldn't account for how a medieval forger or even a present day forger would know how to to be able to replicate this uh, this type of image. But then you see, when the Duke of Savoy died in the early 1980s, he bequeathed the the cloth to to the Vatican. And uh, since then, uh, they haven't allowed very much. They, of course, they did allow the, the carbon dating, which um, all the, the best protocols were all thrown out and um, by the, um, the carbon dating labs. And, and they, only, uh, they only sampled one small area of the cloth that had been very damaged over, over history because it was right in the corner um, and had been repaired. So that's, that's how. And you see, I was actually a... a a student doing a science degree during my medical degree um, when the carbon dating paper came out. And even then, uh, you could see in a in the, there's a little box of the actual uh, statistics of the paper. And you could see that the the looking at it statistically, the three different labs, two of them had come out with statistically significantly different ages for the cloth, which was suggesting that even within that tiny seven centimeter strip, from which the, the the sample was was taken that was dated, there was variation, and and of course with the the work of uh, Benford and Marino, and later uh, confirmed by the the scientific research of Raymond Rogers of Los Alamos, as I say, that can be accounted for in terms of the different proportions of the of the much more recent material that was that was woven in in the 16th century repair. And in that repair was that part of I believe there was a fire, there was some fire damage or something at one point. Uh, no, this was this was a, a different to that. Yes, you're right. There was fire damage, and and there are clearly clearly visible uh, patches that have been sewn on uh, to, to to the cloth. But this was a this was a different thing using what was uh, known uh, and is still known as uh, invisible reweave technique. Um, that it's thought that as well as being damaged, that um, you know possibly. Parts of it had been cut off as to be to be sold or given away as 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 relics, mm. um, and that they then it needed to be 
be repaired and so it was it was sewn in a way to try and make it look like it was uh, in, at first sight but it's it's actually chemically distinct and this is what Raymond Rogers discovered that the if you do a chemical analysis of that corner of the cloth it's completely different to, to the rest of the cloth. So the creation of the image then, um, would that hmm. be considered, and we, we've, we've toyed with the definition of the word miracle, but would you, be, would you consider it to be miraculous? As I say, I believe it's, a, it's an expression of the, the, full, the fulfillment of, of, of the potential of, of humanity, of a human being, of, of what a human being can do, that, that because mind over matter, I'm, I'm arguing in the book, and I present a, you know, much more detail in the book, a case of why I believe mind over matter is totally natural. But we have become far less than our full potential. And this man, uh, individual Jesus of Nazareth, um, showed how uh, a human being could achieve their, their full potential. And he, of course, he always referred to himself as the son of man. Uh, uh, and um, it was, I, I believe that's, showing what a human being can can achieve but i have to ask this and you you made it very very clear that you didn't approach any of this from a religious perspective but are we talking sure. about and and are we offering what might be an explanation for what we consider to be divine well uh, when he was asked about that, when uh, people sort of questioned him about sort of saying that he is, has a, a connection to God, and he said, "Is it not written, you are gods in the in the in the laws?" It's um, that that he basically said that uh, that all of us have a, a divine divine potential and and when uh, people referred to him as the as the you know when he referred to his father as god he also said anyone who does his will is my brother my sister so that would mean if they're his brother then god is also their father and 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 uh, we even said you know our father so um i believe he was pointing to the divine origin and potential of all humanity Okay, so I just need to, need a clarification here. Does that mean huh. then that um, we have misinterpreted those messages? In other words, Christianity pointing to a singular God um, is misinterpreting the fact that he was actually saying that we are God. Um, I, 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 if someone tells me uh, about a singular God, then I'll say no. I don't think they're misinterpreting it because. Uh, to me, if if I were to use the word God, and I don't use it much because it's so has so many meanings, it has a different meaning for each person who who uses it. But but this, the 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 light that people see in the near death experiences, uh, the sense of 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 oneness and compassion that they get from that light of all being one, for me that is pointing towards the nature of of what of what we call of what people many people call. God and it is it is one it is singular and our separation as individual identities each with our own particular pattern of, of limitations and restrictions and selfishness lack of empathy that that demarcates us out and makes us sort of self-seeking and and so on that that's what that's makes us different to that to our potential but our our full potential would be the potential that was that was, I think, shown by by that individual Jesus of Nazareth, and showed how a human being can be become the same as God. We um, we're going to run out of time, so I want to move the conversation a little bit. Where does this these where do these ideas and everything we've talked about tonight um, come into play when we start talking about um, intelligent life that might be non human? 
or at least non-terrestrial? Well, I, I would be, I suppose, exactly the same, although you mentioned Stephen Hawking before, and uh, he was once asked about um, extraterrestrial. Of course, <laughs> a lot of people might say, but is there intelligent life on Earth? <laughs> Looking at, you know, world politics and so on, and so, some people would say it's debatable whether there's intelligent life on Earth. But but, but, um, but he, he made the point that if, if we have contact from extraterrestrial uh, sort of civilizations, that we have to bear in mind the fact that that it may be that what we call the what they call the organic period of of of, of intelligence or of civilization, so-called in quotes, may be a short period. The time when there's actually living things there that that people like um, Stephen Hawking and, and many other uh, scientists suggest that, as I, as I was saying right at the start, that that actually once you start to go down the lines of what people are calling artificial intelligence, although um, then there isn't that much longer that you actually have biological living human beings because people go down this uh, yellow brick road of imaginarily thinking that they can upload their minds into a machine, which is a very dangerous thing to do because that's never you. You can never be summarized as ones and zeros. But if people go down that road and human beings then become redundant. And so the point is that if it would be the same for uh, civilization on another planet. So if we ever have contact from it, it may be that the, the contact that we would be or might be getting would then be merely machines, that it's not actually anything anything living anymore. Um, but yes, they're, they're, I, I would say that everything that I've said would apply the same to a sentient being uh, wherever they are in, in the universe. If we're talking about consciousness being eternal, does that then, mm. by definition, support the idea of reincarnation? Well, I think reincarnation does seem to make a lot of sense. If, you know, so many of people in the near-death experiences, they perceive that light, but they, they know that that they're not completely congruent with it, if you like. They don't quite fit there. They're not as as, as wise and compassionate as, as the light, if you like. So if if we can't become that light as perhaps people like Jesus might have done uh, then then how do, where do how do we continue our existence and yes reincarnation would make sense in light of that and and, and people um, I address the questions of why don't we often remember past lives and and also the argument about people have said in in the book I also address the point that people say oh but there's more people alive now than than have ever lived than have ever died in the past. Actually, that's not actually true. Um, that it's actually uh, someone uh, called Joel Cohen of the Population Institute in, in the US, I think it was, um, did a calculation. There's been over 100 billion um, lives before before now. Um, so, so that's also not true. So, yes, it, I, I do think that that reincarnation is is real. And in fact, we mentioned about uh, Jesus earlier. It looks like if you if you read what he said, he was actually alluding to it because um, and the, when there was that debate about who do people say that I am, and what, what one of his apostles said, um, well, some say that the the Messiah can't come back until Elijah has returned. And and uh, and it's reported that he said, "I tell you, he's already returned, and and you didn't recognise him." And and the the text then says that they understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. But hang on a second, 
how could Elijah come back as John the Baptist unless such a thing as reincarnation was understood to be a, a normal, mm. real thing by them? Right. Um, you've talked a lot about light. You've talked about a lot mm. about the light, particularly in near-death experiences as people will describe mm. this phenomena. Um, are we using light here as a metaphor in some way? And if not, does that mean, and, and this is just a, a, maybe a naive question, but I'm looking for a distinction here. Does that mean there is some type of this um, presence, this uh, this divinity, if you will, in all light? Well, the, the presence would be in, in all sentient being. And the the thing about light, this was something that a um, professor of physics, uh, David Bohm, was was once asked about, and I, I give the full quote in the in the book um, about why is is light used as a, a the question the interviewer used the word metaphor to him in in sort of about the the spiritual and the the mystical, and he made the point that actually for light, and this is this is not controversial. This is this is um, Einstein's relativity equations show that light for, for for a light beam if you like um there's no space and there's no time in the sense that uh it's, it's what the um on the space-time diagrams they call it the null cone null meaning zero because there's no space and no time elapsing for from the point of view of light we were talking about clocks going at different rates and so on so if, if you were light if you were a light beam if you like your uh, origin and destination have no distance between them, and there's no time elapsed between you going from one and, and, and arriving at the other. So if you like, light is the, the interface between our existence in, in separation as we are separate individuals, separate identities. As I say, that we're all less than that light that people perceive in their NDEs if we haven't fully realized all the potential of, of empathy, compassion and, and wisdom and so on that people see in that light. We're less than that. And each of us have a pattern of how we're less than that that marks us out as, uh, as individuals. And light is, if you like, the interface between this, this universe of space and time and the the eternal non non-temporal state of state of being um so it's it's not so much that it's it's contained uh in the light but it's contained in the in the in the perceiver that that can see that can see light um and the the if the potential is is realized fully then then, then light happens as as it did on the on the shroud image and and in fact not just um, Jesus but if you look at historical depictions of people like the Buddha and many other people why do people draw them as having light around them perhaps people had a sense that 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 some people do have this 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 radiance that once it gets beyond a certain point might might actually be visible but that's not really what this is about the book isn't about sort of sensationalism or anything uh, spectacular or um or a sort of a, a sort of a recipe book for 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 making sort of uh, miracles happen or anything like that it's pointing to the fact that that every human being in every moment that they that they are aware and conscious and can make choices is actually bigger in significance and scope than than the whole physical universe 
Dr. Silverman, the book is called A Burst of Conscious Light. Is is this something that anybody can appreciate, or do you need some kind of uh, prerequisite information to be able to understand the concepts? Um, I would I would argue that that it is is and this is what some of the reviewers have said that it is actually uh, written in a in an accessible style that that people can understand. I've had some nice uh, write ups from a, a professor in Australia and but also from um, near death uh, experience researchers such as um, Pim Van Lommel and Dr. Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon who um, had his near and and. Um, and and people have said that that it is actually it is accessible because I I don't go into sort of equations and and things like that numbers and so on I'm just relating people to things that are in their in their common everyday experience such as the fact that they are aware that they're conscious and what can we what can we derive from that what can they derive from that as they 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 join me on that journey to try and explore that. And what's your hope if someone reads the book that they walk away with? Walk away, perhaps, hopefully, with a with a with a sense which maybe they already have, hopefully, of the the wonder and magnificence of all and every every human being, and an understanding of the that that we're we're not made we're not piles of atoms or or cells that we are we are eternal beings and just just realize that and value themselves and and each other more are these ideas um do they apply to all living things or is this exclusive to humanity well i i would say um that i mean for for example for um different levels of animal and so on and plant we may we may never know to what extent an animal can uh, can perceive that we being humans we know what uh, what humans are, are capable of and so as a book written by a human for humans it's mainly addressing humanity <laughs> <laughs> uh, dr silverman where can people find a burst of conscious light well, I was going to say you can find it in all good bookstores, but of course people are all at home isolating yeah. and, and not going out at the moment. So although it is available in all bookstores when they open again, um, you can also uh, order it through uh, Amazon or um, it is available online or from the from the publisher in the traditions or the, uh, it's distributed by, by Simon & Schuster to, to bookshops. As, well. as a medical professional, you probably don't have a lot of spare time at the moment, but any other projects on the horizon for you? Well, quite possibly. Uh, there's already some uh, germs of an idea for, for, for the next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we appreciate your time. This is groundbreaking and fascinating uh, and very, very interesting work. I appreciate you uh, putting it into terms that we can understand. And uh, most importantly, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for your time, and thank you so much for having me on the show. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.